It's Friday, February 15th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Carol Hills, filling in for Marco Werman. A big surprise for people in central Russia today. They have seen a fireballs. Uh, it's a fireball was streaking through the clear morning sky. A meteor breaks up in the sky 1,000 miles east of Moscow. Windows are shattered, hundreds are injured, and panic ensues. All on the same day that another big hunk of rock, an asteroid, passes close to Earth. Are the two events related? This 24-hour period is a big cosmic coincidence. And later, Chicago's new public enemy number one is from Mexico. Plus a new trend in China, the family holiday road trip. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. And by Warner Home Video with Argo, directed by Ben Affleck. Available on Blu-ray Combo Pack and digital download February 19th. This is The World. I'm Carol Hills, filling in for Marco Werman. Never mind that close call with the asteroid. We're going to talk about that space rock that made global headlines earlier today. A meteor streaked across the sky and exploded over central Russia near the Ural Mountains. The sonic boom shattered windows and damaged buildings on the ground. Close to a 1,000 people were injured. At least one meteorite fragment landed in a lake. It all happened near the Russian city of Chelyabinsk, about a 1,000 miles east of Moscow. Resident Paulina Zolotarevskia, who works as a translator, witnessed the event. We saw a very bright light. Then there was a kind of a track, white and yellow in the sky. And then, in several seconds, uh, there was a strong explosion. The explosion was uh, so strong that some windows uh, in our building and uh, in the buildings across the road, the windows broke. And I know that where my mom works, the wall of the factory broke and it blocked the road. That was one eyewitness account from Chelyabinsk, along with the sound of the meteor recorded by another witness. The BBC's Rafael Sakov in Moscow has spoken to several other residents of the city today. For most of them, it was like a war zone, as they described. So for about 20, 30 minutes, and the meteor crashing in the Ural Mountains, it was uh, something unbelievable for people, uh, a little bit scary. There were lots of videos in Internet as the shockwave blew out windows and rocked buildings. Most of people's hearts suffered minor cuts, but some received even head injuries. And uh, they have seen a fireball. The fireball was streaking through the clear morning sky above the city. And um, some, uh, maybe you've heard also that it was a large meteor, but uh, there were some fragments which landed on the ground. So it was uh, an explosion uh, in atmosphere, and then only some fragments, debris, landed, uh, one of them uh, to the lake and uh, two others in other places, as it was said uh, by officials. So, so did they hear sort of a roar or were things shaking? I'm trying to visualize. Yes, they see the fireball was, and then what happens? 
Yes, it was uh, something like an explosion, yeah, and uh, like uh, when it is an earthquake and uh, these uh, windows after the shockwave, they were blew out. Of course, the buildings were a little bit uh, shattered, so for people uh, it was something that they didn't understand. They said that they smelled fumes, uh, for example, yeah, that was uh, something strange, yeah. You know, one thing that we find interesting is that there's been so much videotape of it. How were people ready to videotape this when it happened so quickly? Uh, you know, uh, most of these videos are coming from the cars, uh, and the Russian cars, they have such dashboard cameras. Really? Uh, be- yes, because uh, of the different car accidents, it's rather popular now in Russia to have such cameras. Then you can say that uh, something happened uh, in the street with so your an car. it's an insurance issue. Yes, it's like an insurance issue. And, of course, it makes you safer a little bit. And des- describe happens. this area for us. I'm imagining, uh, you know, I hear a city of a million, and then I think, oh, a big urban center. But what, is the, yeah. what does it look like there? Chelyabinsk and Katerinburg are rather big cities, but the main thing was that this largest meteor fragment landed in a lake, so not in the crowded area. Of course, uh, it could be much worse. There are lots of rescue workers working there already, about 20,000 of them. Now, of course, uh, some children should have missed their lessons because uh, some uh, schools and kindergartens had been damaged as well and work disrupted at uh, industrial enterprises. So that will be a rather um, long uh, period of recovering after this meteor crash. So the government says that everything will be done just to help people. Rafael Sakov is a reporter with the BBC Russian Service. He's speaking to us from Moscow. Rafael, thank you so much. You're welcome. Good luck. Bye-bye. This 24-hour period is a big cosmic coincidence. Earlier today, I spoke with Denton Abel. He's the curator of meteorites at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. He explained the difference between a meteorite and an asteroid. The object that made an airburst over Russia is a meteorite because pieces of it will be recovered. They've already been recovered in in Chelyabinsk, and it will be called Chelyabinsk meteorite. The object that's coming by us is a asteroid, a near-Earth asteroid, and this one is coming at 17,000 miles, which seems like a long ways, but it's actually inside the 22,000-mile orbits of our geosynchronous satellite systems. It includes the GPS and and weather and communication satellites. So visualize this for us, uh, talking about the meteorite that landed in, um, in Russia today. So that was an asteroid, big mass of stuff, till it plops through the Earth's atmosphere, and then it sort of explodes and spreads everywhere and creates debris. Is that sort of what happens? Well, these things come in at very high speeds, This on the order of, of 10 kilometers per second, which is, is 18,000 miles per hour, something, some crazy number. And they're so fast, they're beyond the speed of sound, so the way they interact with the atmosphere is completely different than, say, a speeding bullet. The sound, literally, the, the air can't get out of the Way. So they tend to explode high up in the atmosphere, and some explode very high up. Others get farther down into the atmosphere before they actually explode in an airburst, and that's exactly what happened here. So did you know these two things were happening this week, or did the one in Russia was came out of the blue? Russia, literally, it's blue sky out there this morning. They woke up and smelled the asteroid. But uh, <laughs> no one knew that was coming, a small object, maybe... 10 
feet, three meters in diameter. But the, uh, the big object was actually spotted a year ago by amateurs in Spain as part of a, the worldwide effort to, to find and, and, and characterize all the asteroids that cross the Earth's orbit because they're all potential threats until that's ruled out. And so uh, that was known to be coming. And this is the very first time that something coming that close has been seen ahead of time. So instead of saying, oh, there it went, and now we're able to actually prepare for it, and there's a lot of observation being planned, and uh, that will give us much better handle on its speed and its absolute position in space. So is there any sort of danger? Is this something people should worry about? or, or People in, should not worry about it. Not at all. They should not worry about these particular rocks. The small one did injure people, but mostly because of the pressure wave blasted windows and people were injured by glass and falling objects. The thing that's coming close to the Earth was seen. It's We know where it's going. We know that it's not going to hit any satellites. They both, though, are wake-up calls in the sense that while we have characterized the orbits of 95-plus percent of the all the Earth-crossing asteroids that are larger than a kilometer in diameter, and those are the real dangerous ones. The smaller ones are still at work in progress. The one here that's coming by us today, that'll pass over Indonesia, actually, its closest approach, is only 45 meters. It's a small, small body, comparatively. And so it, it, it's, it would constitute a danger to a small local area, but, you know, people are pretty concentrated in cities, and most of the Earth is, is area where if this thing did hit, something its size hit, we would we'd hardly notice. Denton Abel is the curator of meteorites at the American Museum of Natural History. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Well, I like the world very much as a show, and I, I, hope, I hope to uh, talk to you again soon. If you haven't seen video of that meteor screaming down over central Russia, well, we've got it at theworld.org. Now, some books can make their authors pretty unpopular. Kick that up a big notch in the case of author Akram Aylizli in Azerbaijan. A political party there has offered a bounty to anyone who slices his ear off. People have been protesting outside the novelist's home and burning copies of his books. The reason for all this is that Aylizli's latest novel, Stone Dreams, is seen as pro-Armenian. Azerbaijan and Armenia have been locked in conflict since a bloody war over a disputed enclave in the 1990s. That history is key to understanding this case according to Famil Ismailov of the BBC's Russian service. Lots of atrocities have happened on both sides and been committed on both sides. And over the years, both sides have created a parallel narrative of history where the anything that Armenians have done against Azerbaijanis have been the main part of Azerbaijani history to show that these are the real culprits and we are the real victims. And the same happened on the other side. But... Akram Aylisti was the first person, really, for the past 20 or so years, the first Azerbaijani maybe who actually openly admitted, yes, Azerbaijanis have done atrocities and violence against Armenians, and they should be sorry for that. And that's how peace could start. But the same, as he said in his interviews later on, the Armenians have, have to do the same thing. But before it happens... The novel, so it's a fiction. It's, it's, it's a book. What, you know, is it, it's what a does the novel imply, or what do Azeris feel that the novel is implying? 
Uh, the Azeris mostly, uh, I'm not talking about intellectuals here, but en masse, they, they consider the book as uh, an attempt to rewrite the history in pro-Armenian style, which is totally wrong. This is not a historical book. It's not a textbook. So now Akram Ailizli, his son has lost his job. People have burning the books. They're protesting outside his home. What's next? I mean, will, will the government intervene to protect this writer or is popular sentiment overriding that? The speculation among the blogosphere and uh, online is among many people that uh, all this sort of chasing the author, all these um, steps taken against the author, all the anger against the author wouldn't have happened in the tightly controlled society if the government didn't allow it. So some people see this as as an attempt to divert the attention of the uh, people of Azerbaijan from the actual social problems, but at the same time, you could see that most of the intellectuals, even those who agree with Akram Alisli, try not to voice their concern or their support for Mr. Alisli because they fear the same reprisals against them that they could see against uh, Mr. Alisli. A political party is offering $13,000 bounty to anyone who will slice off the ear of Akram that, Alisli? That's, that's correct. It's been, it's been sort of take, taken back. And the, the head of the party, which actually a pro-government party, also... Reverted. He said, I mean, he was warned by the police and he said that, OK, well, I mean, I, I take my words back. I mean, nobody should do that. But on the other hand, even though nobody's now trying to slice the um, ear of Mr. Alice Lee, but his life is still in threatened. Before, before this novel, was he someone who was sort of a revered writer and suddenly people hate him well, and they yeah. used to love him? Where does, where's yes. the, what's his standing in Azerbaijan? Uh, well, I mean, he's uh, one of the top writers, a uh, classical writer. His books would be started at schools. It's part of curriculum. Uh, you know, that's in Soviet Union, and now this sort of way passed on to the former Soviet Union countries as well. The better, I mean, the writers that are uh, considered to be the best would get a status, like be called a people's writer, and would get state pension on top of what they actually get, the president's pension, as they call it. But now those two, the status of being a, a people's writer, and also the presidential uh, top-up of the state pension been taken away from me stylistically. Uh, well, I mean, they've burned these books. Maybe tomorrow they will scrap out all his books from the school curriculum. But up to now, he was a classical writer. I've been talking to Famil Ismailov of the BBC Russian Service, who has interviewed Akram Alizli, the Azeri author who's in an awful lot of trouble with his countrymen over a novel he's written that they accuse him of being pro-Armenian. Thank you very much, Famil. You're welcome. I'm Carol Hills, and this is The World. Turns out Al-Qaeda's Africa chapter had a comprehensive strategy for conquering northern Mali, at least according to a letter just discovered in a former militant command post in Timbuktu. The nine-page document instructs local fighters to tread lightly on the local population, to avoid destroying ancient monuments and libraries, and not to impose a strict version of Islamic law. But those instructions weren't heeded, and the militants' behavior wound up alienating most Malians. But that's not the whole story, as the CBC's Laura Lynch reports. As the late afternoon sun slides toward the night, shadows stretch across a patch of dirt in downtown Bamako. Four boys wearing only sandals, their feet smudged with rust-colored soil, have just minutes left to finish their soccer match before darkness. In this poor part of the city, the goal has no net, just a ditch that catches the ball. They may not be rich nor have a bright future, 
but they're fierce soccer players and equally fierce patriots who know all about the fighting far away. We are good Malians. Mali is our land and we want to keep moving forward. We want to liberate the north. They sound like young warriors, stout defenders of their land. But everyone knows the enemy, the jihadists, were a tough foe who easily dispensed with the Malian army last year. And part of what made it so difficult to fight them is the fact that there are those in cities like Gao who sympathize with them, perhaps even support them. Bamature, silver-haired and slow-moving, welcomes me to the courtyard of his simple home near the center of town. He keeps birds and chickens here, and his wife cooks over an open flame. It's a tranquil setting for a conversation about a disturbing subject. Just a few hundred yards from here, in an open field, the jihadists who ran this city for 10 months carried out harsh and bloody punishments, cutting off people's hands and feet. But listen to Toure's reaction to the brutality brought upon his neighbors. Listen, in particular, to his seeming acceptance of it all. Yes, it wasn't hidden. They did it. They did it. It's the law, Sharia law. Generally, it was for people who broke the law, thieves or a man seen with a woman he wasn't married to. Then they cut off their hand. That kind of reaction isn't a surprise to Malian political analyst Adam Thiem, in spite of the abundance of images of Malians greeting French troops as liberating heroes. He says he spent long hours meeting with people in Gao, trying to understand how militant groups were able to take over there. I was under the impression, in talking to some groups, that the Salafis were not a problem, that people who had their hand cut were real thieves. Tiam says the militants have been able to exploit many people's adherence to a more fundamental strain of Islam, but they also tapped into northern Malian's sense of alienation from their own weak government, when unable or unwilling to make its presence felt outside larger cities. There are people in this community who have never seen a Malian doctor, a Malian teacher, a Malian soldier. And so the jihadists came in, filling the vacuum with offers of help, help they could provide through the vast amounts of money they made engaging in kidnapping and smuggling. But they also issued demands at the point of a gun. Local Iman Zakaria Yahia Maiga watched them enter his mosque and take over. Often they would come here to pray, and they would lay their guns down in front of them, scaring everyone. Then they would be in charge preaching their own form of Islam. They erected stark signs, black with white lettering, warning people that their version of Sharia law must be obeyed. And they stayed for months, facing not even the whiff of a challenge from the Malian army that was in disarray. Now the army is back, and Major Colonel Didier Darko says it won't repeat the mistakes of the past, especially if the West is willing to help keep the militants at bay right here. Gao is like an open gate to the big Sahara. Darko has trained with the military in the United States, and he'd like the West to come here to do more, to ensure the fighters don't simply slip across borders to plot their next attack. It might be somewhere somewhere else in another country, somewhere where the situation is, is profitable to them, another weak state somewhere. So for this reason, I think we have to really take care of all these places that are empty 
The U.S. military is considering using more surveillance aircraft and possibly drones to patrol the vast sands of the Sahara, but Adam Tiam doubts that will be enough. They will not give up the desert. This is where they have invested the most, and uh, they know for sure that an international longer presence uh, will not be sustainable and that the state of Mali will never have the means to, to, to fight them. But it seems Washington and other Western governments remain reluctant to do more, at least militarily. The Obama administration, committed to pulling out of Afghanistan, fears another quagmire in Mali, especially when some observers say the jihadists pose no direct threat to American interests. Some, like Adam Tiam, suggest a focus on development and aid in northern Mali to reduce the influence of those who preach jihad. Ramature cleans up after cooking the midday meal. It's her husband who seemed not to mind the presence of the militants in his city. He didn't even want her to be interviewed. But I seek her out, away from him, to ask what she thinks. Her face suddenly becomes shrouded with the memories. The whole time, I didn't budge. My husband didn't budge. We stayed inside all the time. Very terrible, she says, and quickly turns away. Gao is still a city on edge. In the last few days, there have been suicide attackers, gunfights, and a huge 1,200-pound bomb found in the heart of the city. There seems no lasting peace here and no easy path to finding a solution in Mali's shifting sands. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch. Gao, Mali. Meet some of the people who lived through the violence in Gao. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. Another voice from Mali now, one you already may know, Salif Keita. Salif Keita is perhaps the best-known singer from Mali. His 2002 song, Yamore, was an ode to peace, and it's emerged again as Salif Keita's plea for peace today in Mali. Keita was in London recently and spoke with the BBC about the current situation in his home country. Like many Malians, he's trying to stay hopeful. Daily life of Malian people, they are like, like, they like Christian people, they like Muslim people, they like uh, animistic people. This is our way to live, Malian people. No Muslim integrist people. It's not just religion that makes Mali complex. It's also ethnicity, Tuareg in the north, but also Sorai and Fulani. And in the south, Wasulu and Bambara. But Keita says Mali has undergone internal strife over the years, but it's never been divided into good guys and bad guys before now. Mali is one. Mali never been two. Mali is one since 1960. 1960 is when Mali gained independence from France. Salif Keita is 63. His experience has shown him that Mali historically has rejected extremist Islam. The big question now is whether the extremists are now rejecting Mali. This is PRI. I'm Carol Hills, ahead of veterans' struggles to help bring his Afghan interpreter to the U.S. The interpreter's life may be in danger, but he's not coming unless he documents it first. It's hard to communicate. Like, I need you to write this out on paper, sign it, you know, use specific dates. They don't look at calendars like we do. Plus, relations between Iran and the U.S. get a bit nutty. 
WBRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. And by Warner Home Video with Argo, directed by Ben Affleck. Available on Blu-ray Combo Pack and digital download February 19th. I'm Carol Hills in for Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. President Obama traveled to Chicago today. He went there to promote his economic proposals, but also to talk about gun violence, something Chicago experiences a lot of, unfortunately. And when it comes to crime in the city, though, there's more than guns in the mix. Yesterday, the Chicago Crime Commission announced its new public enemy number one. The last one was, get this, Al Capone. The new public enemy number one doesn't even live in the city. He's Joaquin Guzman, known as El Chapo, the head of Mexico's Sinaloa drug cartel. Michael Tarm covers legal issues for the Associated Press in Chicago. He says Guzman may be far away, but he looms large over the city. He has tremendous influence in Chicago. His cartel that supplies uh, more than 90% of the cocaine heroin, meth, and other narcotics to the city. So authorities say here that for all practical purposes, he ought to be viewed as a local crime boss. He's never set foot in Chicago, as far as anyone knows, uh, and is holed up and guarded by a personal army in, in Mexico. So give us a sense of who he is. Well, he first gained notoriety in 2001 when he escaped from a Mexican prison in a laundry cart. He is widely regarded now as really the most dangerous and most wanted fugitive uh, in the world. He's also one of the richest. Forbes magazine has estimated his fortune at about $1 billion. This is a man with tremendous power and reach, reach that extends not only to Chicago and the United States, but to Europe and, and even Australia. Being declared public enemy number one is a huge deal. What is the impact of El Chapo in Chicago that prompted Chicago to declare him public enemy number one? Through the cartels that operate here, authorities say that indirectly El Chapo and his cartel, the Sinaloa cartel, is responsible for much of the violence in the city. And not directly, but because they supply the drugs and they use gangs as their salesmen on street corners, these gangs vie for territory. And in the process, they have killed not only each other, but also bystanders. So they say if they can go after the cartels, if they can dislodge the cartels, they also hope they will see a resulting reduction in violence in the city. So how does Chicago proposed to get El Chapo, given that he's in Mexico. He has been indicted out of the Chicago office, and authorities hope that when he's caught, and if he's captured alive, he'll be put on a plane to Chicago and will end up in a Chicago federal courtroom. Did something precipitate the naming of him as public enemy number one, some sort of outrageous crime, or is this a public relations thing to just focus on this? I don't think there's any one thing, but I think it's something that's been building over the years. 
the public as a whole simply doesn't understand the extent of the power of somebody like Guzman. And I think authorities hit on this idea to name Guzman public enemy number one uh, as a way to raise that profile. This is the first time they've done it since Al Capone in 1930. There's never been a criminal figure uh, as menacing, as ruthless, as powerful as Guzman. So that's why they're doing it now. Compare the two men, Joaquin Guzman, El Chapo, to Al Capone. How do they compare in terms of bad guyness? Well, there was a period in time when Capone was seen as kind of a Robin Hood uh, by many people in Chicago. And my understanding is that there are at least some uh, in, in the area where Guzman lives who have that same perception of him. Capone was known as Scarface. Guzman's nickname means Shorty. But authorities here say the big difference is that Guzman is a lot more dangerous, a lot more powerful, and has more wealth than Capone ever, ever dreamed of. Michael Tarm is with the AP in Chicago. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you. Yesterday, we told you the story of an Iraqi family who arrived in California with the help of a former U.S. Army captain. Today, we have the story of a growing network of Americans working to bring Iraqis and Afghans to safety in the U.S. These are men and women who risked their lives working with the U.S. military. It's an increasingly urgent effort now that U.S. troops are starting to pull out of Afghanistan. The world's Monica Campbell reports. Meet three vets, all law students at the University of California, Berkeley. My name is Mark Zambarda. I was an Army officer from 2007 to 2012, and I was in Kunar Province, Afghanistan. My name is Ben Ash. I'm 24. I was a sergeant in the Marines. I went to Iraq from 2008-2009. My name is Matthew Pelnar. I'm 31 years old. I served in Iraq in 2007. I served in Afghanistan in 2008. We're in a small room on campus. The veterans break out their laptops to show me documents, growing case files aimed at helping their Iraqi and Afghan interpreters get U.S. visas and out of danger. Former Marine Ben Ash remembers threatening images from Iraq. Fairly common, we'd see like graffiti uh, on like bridges and buildings where we'd search a lot that would target us and target our uh, interpreters with very strange murals underneath it, like beautiful murals of hearts and imagery of lions, and then above it would be like, collaborators must die and stuff like that. Former Marine Matthew Pelnar has already helped one Iraqi interpreter's family get to safety. Now he's on the case of an Afghan interpreter and his family. For my Afghan case, uh, our interpreter has actually received um, threats via telephone, uh, and his dad has received uh, phone calls um, telling them that they know he's an interpreter for U.S. forces and that he needs to stop or they'll kill him. And then there's the case Mark Zambarda is working on. He's trying to get his platoon's interpreter out of Afghanistan. The documentation he's compiled on his laptop is surreal and terrifying. This is a threat letter that he received. I mean, the stationery in the background is actually like out of a children's notebook. It's kind of like a mandate saying, like, stop working for the U.S., you will be killed. These get posted. They'll literally watch to see people take them down, too, and that, you know, that'll be cause for people getting hurt or killed. In 2010, just before Zambarda left his outpost in one of Afghanistan's deadliest areas, he typed out a letter vouching for his interpreter. As platoon leader, I mean, this guy was like my right-hand man because he was my voice. We really do become friends. These guys aren't just another Afghan. They're, they're, they're heroes, just the same. His interpreter is still waiting for a U.S. visa three years on. 
The U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan only makes their work more urgent. I just hope that they do a really good last look at this, you know, before U.S. forces leave, because it's going to be a bad situation for those guys over there if they don't. But these veterans aren't toiling alone. They're working with a fast-growing nonprofit called the Iraqi Refugee Assistance Project. It recruits students at law schools nationwide to work with pro bono lawyers on the cases. Becca Heller co-founded the group at Yale in 2008 after seeing Iraqi refugees stranded in Jordan. She's now determined to break the Afghan visa backlog. Thousands of visa applications are piled up in Kabul. U.S. officials say staff can't keep up with the demand. Heller says that's not a good enough answer. There are these systems in place to try to assist people, but the systems are really broken and they're really difficult to navigate. I don't know how on earth you're supposed to manage to get your visa application to Nebraska, which is literally where it has to go. Heller's not surprised that veterans are drawn to her group. They're used to U.S. government bureaucracy and how it doesn't always compute in places like Afghanistan. Even mundane requests for copies of ID or proof of U.S. employment are complicated. Here's Ben Ash again. I mean, in defense of the process, no one has experience doing this. This is a huge process. This is taking people who are hired off the streets, who might not have any paperwork, and say and do having to rush in, you know, proof of employment. There's obviously no W-2s. So he and the others have to stress to their Afghan clients the legal importance of getting things down on paper. Zambarda says his interpreter may not always understand what's needed. Like he might just write, "Oh yeah, I got threatened the other day," but it's hard to communicate. Like I need you to write this out on paper, sign it, use specific dates. They don't look at calendars like we do. They don't wear watches like we do. And it's more than gathering paperwork. It's about staying connected to their Afghan clients, friends in some cases. Through Skype, Facebook, email, just not leaving them in the dark. Zambarda reads an email from his interpreter. Sir, if you can please send it to your friends who's working on my case, and tell him please try his best because it's really hard. For I mean, my life—it's so hard. So Zambarda pushes on. On his laptop, there's a photo of his remote Afghan outpost, seven thousand miles from California. All it takes is looking at that to remember the dangers and the friends he left behind. For the world, I'm Monica Campbell, Berkeley, California. Yesterday, we reported on one vet's quest to bring his Iraqi interpreter's family to America. You can hear that plus our one special one-hour podcast on veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. That's all at theworld.org. Today's geo quiz is a bit nutty, literally. We're talking about pistachios, those roasted beige nuts that crack open to reveal a greenish, tasty seed inside. They show up in ice cream, baklava, and biscotti. It turns out the pistachio trees are cultivated in quite a few places around the world, from California to Kazakhstan. But two countries seem to dominate the very competitive global market for pistachios. They are the U.S. and Iran. So Washington and Tehran may disagree on everything from human rights to nuclear weapons, but they both agree pistachios are good business. The question we have for you today is: Which city in Iran is considered the heart of the pistachio industry? We're back later with the answer and more on the politics of pistachios.
Myanmar, or Burma, is getting high marks for political reform. The country that until recently jailed political dissidents now welcomes them into parliament. Among the reform-minded government's goals is a wide-ranging review of the education system. Currently, access is a challenge, teachers don't make enough to live on, and secondary school attendance is low. Whatever the changes, schools run by Buddhist monks, monastic schools, are likely to play a part. Bruce Wallace reports. The kids at the Theory Mingalar School are all in one long room, with wood partitions separating by grade, K-4. through four. Older students lead chants. Younger ones respond. The school has an energy and a cacophony that's likely familiar to primary school teachers the world over. But the lessons, less familiar. They're Buddhist teachings about character and proper behavior. Theory Mingalar, an hour outside of Yangon, is one of about 1,500 schools in Myanmar operated by Buddhist monasteries. Most are primary schools, and while they take in only a small proportion of the country's students, they play an important role. The monastery schools serve families whose kids wouldn't be educated otherwise. They're too poor to afford the nominal cost of state schools, or they live too far away from the nearest state school. Uke Masura is the monastery's head monk. He says they had close to 100 students the year they opened, in 2005, in a school building that still didn't have windows or a floor. Students sat on plastic carpets with a whiteboard leaning against the wall. When there was rain coming from one side, we'd have to move the board and the children to the other side of the room. The schoolhouse has proper windows and blackboards now, and about 200 students. Aside from the Buddhist lessons, it's a standard curriculum of Burmese, English, math, and science. Recently, monastic schools have become an officially recognized part of Myanmar's education system. Somewhere around three-quarters of children in the country attend state schools. Education is compulsory through fifth grade. School attendance drops off precipitously after that. Because monastic schools don't get state funding, they have to cobble together international, NGO, and private sector support. And the teachers have their work cut out for them. Momo-san has taught at Theory Mengalar for three years and says her students have challenges that the ones in state schools don't. Their parents work so hard all day. When they get home, they have to take care of meals and everything. They can't give that much support. So I have to be like a parent and a teacher. Ten-year-old Chit Loon U is typical. He says his father passed away and his mother is a migrant worker at a factory in Thailand. He lives with his grandmother, who sells food at a roadside stall. After school, he goes and helps her. Despite the challenges, there are some ways that monastic schools can have an edge on the state schools. They have more flexibility in their curriculum and have been early adopters in Myanmar of the child-centered approach that many Western school policy types are keen on. Marie Lal is a specialist in education and South Asian studies at the University of London. In many of the monastic schools, you find that, especially when the classes are small enough, that teachers will become... Uh, will actually teach almost better. They might not have necessarily the books and the content knowledge, but their, their teaching methodology might be better than some of the state schools. Lal says it's hard to predict what will come out of the countrywide school system review just getting started in Myanmar. It's very difficult to look into a crystal ball here, but I do think that monastic schools will maintain and probably even increase their importance. She could imagine more money going to them to expand into secondary education, particularly in remote areas where it would be hard for the government to build new schools. Reformers inside Myanmar point to education as being one of the things most in need of fixing. Of course, there's only so much a school can do, 
particularly one that works with some of the poorest students in a poor country. I asked Chitlun U what his plans are for the next school year. He's not going to continue with school, he says. He's going to join his mother in Thailand and work in the factory with her. For the world, I'm Bruce Wallace, Shwepitar Township, Myanmar. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Carol Hills. This is The World. Pistachios are at the heart of our geo-quiz today. Iran and increasingly the United States dominate the global trade in the tasty green nuts. But Iran has just banned the export of pistachios, at least temporarily. Kamran Dadka is an economist at Northeastern University. And Professor Dadka, why is Iran banning an important export? Number one, as you know, the Iranian real has devalued badly. That That's is, their currency, uh, the real. That's right. And indeed, the dollar has increased two, three-folds within a very short period of time. That means the exporters are getting much more money when they export, as opposed to selling in Iran. Now, uh, in 30-some days, it will be Iranian New Year. People are going to be celebrating, and they want to entertain, and therefore, pistachio, as a favorite not uh, among Iranians, is going to be in high demand. On the other hand, people are uh, unhappy with inflation and so on. So the government has set up a committee to manage the market. In that meeting, the representatives of pistachio growers apparently had asked to be allowed to increase the domestic price. Apparently, they didn't agree. He left towards the end of the meeting. And therefore, this is the revenge of the government. The government has said, okay, you are not listening to us. We are in trouble. So we are going to ban your export for six months. Otherwise, this decision doesn't make sense at, at all. It doesn't make any sense that a country in need of foreign exchange bans a favorite export good. So you yourself are Iranian. You've had your share of pistachios. And where is the center of pistachio cultivation in Iran? Uh, the center of the pistachio cultivation is southeast of Iran, the province of Kerman. And among those places, there is the town of Rafsanjan. Of course, it is spread all over the hills in the gardens and so on and so forth. It's very vast uh, agricultural production, but it is basically in that southeastern part of Iran. So Rafsanjan, that is also the answer to our geo-quiz today. How are pistachios served in Iran? If, if you go to Rafsanjan, they come in, uh, you know, as a fresh fruit. They are piled up and you eat them, you know. But in other places, they are uh, processed by roasting them, by adding salt. And then usually it is used as a snack or, uh, of course, the government would not like it, but uh, as a uh, something with the alcoholic drinks, which is very favorite with mm-hmm. them. And I have to ask, whose pistachios do you prefer, Iran's or the U.S.? Uh, <laughs> That's okay. Either way is fine. I, I think I still think the Iranian pistachio is better in terms of taste. Kamran Dadka is an economist at Northeastern University. Thank you, Professor Dadka. My pleasure. It's New Year's in China, and millions and millions are heading home for the holiday. This year, more than 3.4 billion trips are expected to be taken, mostly by bus, train, or plane. But Rebecca Canther and her husband decided to follow a new trend in China. They're driving home for the New Year's. Every year as Chinese New Year approaches, I brace myself. Visits to my husband's home in Hunan province, in the middle of China's countryside, 
usually involve an uncomfortable train ride, crowds of people, and public bathrooms best not to mention. With our seven-month-old daughter along for the ride, I wasn't looking forward to this year's trip. That is, until my husband suggested we take the 500-mile trip by car. Here was a chance to take a road trip, China-style. He wanted the adventure of the open road. I just wanted a little legroom. Our neighbors give us a warm send-off. They examine the tomato-red Buick hatchback on loan from my husband's work and check out our daughter's car seat, a rare sight in China. The road stretches ahead of us, but the hazy pollution makes it hard to see much of anything else. Driving is still a novelty here. My husband is just one of the legions of new drivers flocking to the roads. Mr. Chun is a manager at a rest stop in Anhui province. I'm seeing more privately driven cars, he says. As people get richer, they want to enjoy a better quality of life. Everything's getting better. The roads are better and their salaries are better. So it's only natural that people want to buy a car. The rest stops cater to these new drivers. You can buy local snacks like stinky tofu and sticky rice dumplings. Carpooling with family and friends can actually be more economical than buying train or plane tickets. This year, for the first time, the government is suspending highway tolls during the official week of Chinese New Year. Liu Shujun is a lawyer from the same town as my husband. He's gone home for New Year's for the first time in five years. He drove the 20 hours from southern Shenzhen almost nonstop, so eager to get there that he nearly fell asleep at the wheel. If he had taken the high-speed train, the same trip would have only taken him eight hours. So why put himself to all the trouble? To be honest, I'm much more content driving home. It's more comfortable. Taking the train in China? How should I say this? The rail system has a lot of room for improvement. There is just too many people. For my husband, Liu Jian, driving home not only makes economic sense, he wants the experience, too. I can see a lot of things I can't see from the train. It feels more free. I can leave any time I want and don't need to keep an eye on the time. And I'm happy because I'm in control. Singing along to Chinese rock star Xu Wei, we cross the Yangtze River. Gone are the rice paddies, and instead we pass wheat fields with mounds of dirt marking grave sites. As we near our exit, we get the feeling that the brand new expressway hasn't seen much traffic. Villagers have taken over the breakdown lane. They bicycle and walk along it, carrying New Year's decorations. We exit the highway and start off on the home stretch, until we hit a roadblock near a construction site. Some disgruntled migrant workers are holding up traffic to protest not getting paid. My husband persuades them to let us through, and we're back on our way. The further we get from Shanghai, the more my husband uses his horn. The increase in private cars is creating a new problem out here on these narrow dirt roads, traffic jams. With no traffic lights or police to direct traffic, we get stuck for almost an hour. When we finally pull up to my husband's home, my in-laws rush out to greet us. I see that driving home from the big city has another benefit. Although few would admit to it, it's a sign you've made it. Even in our borrowed second-hand car, we make a good impression. 
Now we just have to make it back to Shanghai. For the world, I'm Rebecca Cantor. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Carol Hills. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.